So Unlearn, thank you for joining us, man. We go in and present another episode, another interview with you. Like you are a regular at this point, um, going back to what, like 2004, 2005, I think. It's a pleasure and an honor, sir. Exactly. Exactly. You know, like we, we've been we've been putting it down for quite some time. And I'm, always, I'm very pleased about that. <laughs> me too. Me too. No, I always got to shout out our history just for anyone who's just tuning in or, or doesn't know that it's almost 20 years at this point, which is pretty amazing. It really is. You know what I'm saying? And I, I, I always say, I like to say, I think I said it in the class that you invited me to speak to. Like I'm, I'm literally forever indebted to you as, as a, as a person in this culture. Um, you were doing shit in, in, in the beginning of this game that we're, we're just starting to kind of get hip to. Um, so I don't think you get your flowers for being the innovator that you are, but, um, that we'll, we'll, we'll find a way to get that fixed for you. Get you, get you your flowers. Um, but no, but aside from that, from if just from a personal standpoint, right? Like my, my career or, or lack thereof in the music industry was literally like at its point. And, and had it not been for your level of enthusiasm to the music that I had been making in my, like my final last shot, um, I, I would not be where I'm at now wherever that is, right? Like I just probably wouldn't have continued music in the way that I'm doing it at the level that I'm doing it now, right? Cause it was just that, that level of enthusiasm really sparked me to keep it, keep it moving and keep it going. So again, I always thank you for that. And I always appreciate um, anytime we have a conversation. <laughs> no, thank you. I always appreciate everything you've done for me as well over the years, whether it's jumping on tracks, interviews, and just watching you be a huge innovator in hip hop. I mean, not too many artists have been able to find ways to where hip hop is their full-time job and hip hop pays the bills. And you've, you've been able to do that, not just through your own music, but through your work at the nonprofit hip hop for change. So I think that's really impressive. And how have you been able to really make hip hop your life and not the side hustle and not the, the part-time or the hobby that it has to be for a lot of us? Yeah, I think for me, my, my experience of it is just kind of learning more about myself, learning what I'm what I'm willing to do, what I'm not willing to do, what I'm capable of, and 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 really just kind of betting on myself in in moments of just kind of to challenge who I am and and to really seek out my purpose, right? But I think part of that involved just me recognizing that I can't compartmentalize anymore. Like I spent years doing the day job thing and rapping on the side and putting out mixtapes that no one was really paying attention to because I literally didn't have the capacity or the bandwidth to go out into the world and and to shake the hands and kiss the babies in the way that most artists need to do when they're on a run for promo or marketing. I didn't even know where to start. So me just becoming aware of that and making the transition from a day job into being a teaching artist, but then further to that, even as a teaching artist, integrating the education work I do into my brand, my overall brand as a hip hop artist, as a figure in the culture, I think is what really did it for me. It's it's coming to that realization that like, yo, you teach hip hop and that should be something that should be highlighted in what you do and who you are in this culture, that you're not only just doing this for yourself, but you're literally giving whatever tools or experiences you have and you're bestowing that onto the next generation. You're, you're literally sparking the brains that are going to change the world the way that Tupac said it, right? So for me, just the, the decision to integrate the education work that I do into my brand as an artist so that people know that is what really just accelerated everything over the last maybe three or four years. So I'm, I'm really happy and proud that I made that decision. Um, I encourage other hip hop educators to do that because I think a lot of hip hop educators, at least from my experience and who I've spoken with, I think often make the mistake of, okay, I teach here, but I rap here. Right. And, and, and the twain shan't meet like we don't you know, what I'm saying like even though I'm teaching hip hop or I'm using hip hop as a as a teaching tool, I'm not going to show my kids or I'm not going to kind of integrate these worlds because rappers, especially rappers, they, they want to be a certain persona in one space and then they want to clean up that persona in another space. And for me. It, it, it runs parallel to my desire to be a more holistic person and to be an almost my most authentic and amplified self in all of my spaces that made me make that decision. And I'm very happy that I made that decision. And I definitely encourage other artists to do the same. And I think they would see amazing results. <laughs>
That's really cool. And when, when I've talked to artists about their creative process, you know, some artists can really break it down. And like, this is exactly how I create. This is how I write. This is how I, I make beats. But other artists are kind of just like, well, I don't know, like I just get in the studio and it all kind of comes together and it's not really like a, an in-depth explanation. But because you're a teaching artist, I would imagine a big step for you is first understanding your own process and how your own mind works as you create so that when you're thinking about how you're going to teach it to kids, you have kind of a, a starting point with yourself to teach, right? So did you kind of have to do some introspection and some reflection in terms of like your own process and how your brain works? Yeah, I think artistry as a whole is, is if not anything else, a journey of yourself and who you are, right, at your core. Because that's going to determine what your brand is, what your story is, your narrative. Like all of these things come as a result of you having a at least a decent understanding of who you are and being really honest with yourself, right? And demystifying the process. I think we've been conditioned in one way or another as artists to make it seem so simple and so easy. So when you ask a new artist or an emerging artist, like, what is your recording process? What is your writing process? They, the, the knee-jerk response, it seems, is, oh, no, I'm just freestyling this. Or I'm just, they, they want to make it seem effortless, right? Like, you know, we, we came up in the era in the early 2000s where it was a bunch of rappers who didn't want to be called rappers. They were like, no, nah, I'm just a hustler who raps and <laughs> that kind of thing. Like, they just wanted to kind of just make it so that it was such an easy process, which I think culturally has and had has had an, an adverse impact, right? Because yes, the, the process has become a lot more accessible nowadays, but no one, because it's become more accessible and almost saturated, no one respects the process. No one respects the time that it takes to put words together on a page or in a notepad and come up with multi-syllable rhyme schemes or very clever metaphors or whatever the case is. There's, the art is really in the process, you know what I'm saying? And I think even hearkening back to hip hop game days, right? Like you you allowed me to have a, 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 a column, so to speak, literally explaining my raps. <laughs> And how I came up with these lines. And it was like things like that where it, it, it enabled me to explain my process. So when I was given the opportunity as a hip hop educator years later to like develop my own curriculum, I had to really sit with myself and like, well, how do I come up with rhymes? What is my what is my approach? What what happens when a beat plays? What's going on in my head? Right. And there's multiple things in, in, in multiple occasions. Um where I have various different processes, but if I'm able to kind of quantify those processes and explain them in a way that is uh, relatable, tangible, cool, I, I think that I can empower a great deal of other artists to do the same, right? And, and another thing is I'm a producer. So I, I think of things through a producer's brain in terms of artist development, in terms of cadence, personality, where the songs are gonna be placed and, and played. Um, but that all came from experience. That came from experience in the music industry. That came from experience as a, as a kind of a hip hop journalist at, at some point working with you and other folks, just being able to just like literally talk about how I create as opposed to just saying I create, right? Like just being able to demystify that process, really bring you into my world and show you kind of how the wheels are working and the, and the grinds are moving um, or the gears are moving. And um, yeah, the, all of those things kind of helped me to be an educator, right? And just be able to uh, really break down my process. But then now that it's out, now that I'm teaching it to other people, it, 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 it actually bolsters my ability, right? The thing that was second nature is now even more embedded into my DNA because I really understand how how it's working in my brain. So that's been always helpful. That's amazing. And when you work with students, you know, in, in the workshops and everything you do with Hip Hop for Change, you know, students and, and kids don't have that same experience, right? Because they're so young and, and they're so new to hip hop in general. Um, so they don't have it in their mind that this is impossible or I can't do this. So like, what have you seen in working with students in their creative process um, where they might be willing to take different risks or try different things that maybe you or I would say, oh, we're not even going to try that. Or that's not, that's not, you know, part of the process, you know, um, I don't do it that way. Do you see some, some real creativity and have you, what have you learned, I guess, in working with students and seeing their create creativity in their process? Yeah, um, 
you know, I, I was going to say, and you kind of touched on it right there. I think students teach me just as much as I teach them, right? Like I'm, I'm in my forties, right? So by all accounts in, in the hip hop world, I'm, I'm an elder statesman, <laughs> um, which I relish in and I appreciate, right? But that, that, that's not to say that I have such a wealth of wisdom that no one should be questioning my authority or questioning my process. You incorporate a lot of these new things, these new dynamics, right? The way that kids are creating now are vastly is vastly different than the way I created when I was their age, right? When I'm 15 years old, I had to first find a studio. <laughs> I had to be nice enough to be led in the studio. And I had to have the, a producer really guide me through what it is to record and punch in and do all of these different things. And the DIY aspect of, of, of creating nowadays, and because it's so accessible, has allowed students and, and younger people to create differently, right? For me, it was a very linear process. You write your rhyme, you memorize your rhyme, you go into the studio and record it, right? where I think kids now can do that. And there's a really great school of thought and, and, and artists that do that still. But there are also artists who kind of move off the beaten path. And they say, you know what? I'm going to develop a cadence first before I even have the words. Then I'm going to come up with the words. Maybe some of this is written and maybe the rest of it I'm, I'm freestyling. But I'm also writing and freestyling as I am on the mic in real time. Right. So because of that accessibility of you actually having the studio either in your house, or you're hanging out with your boys or your team or whatever. I think that just changed the way that rap is made. And it's also changed the way that we um, develop cadences, rhythms. You know, this is how we're getting all of these newer rhyme schemes. It's no longer the AABB kind of rhyme scheme or the, the old school Big Daddy Kane kind of flow. You're getting all these really sophisticated new ways of, of, of delivery. Um, you know, by evidence of the Migos and, and other artists, you know what I'm saying? Like, say what you want about their content, but the genius is really in their cadence and their creative process. And that really comes from just the new ability to create the way that we're creating. So um, I'm learning a lot from, from younger kids. I'm learning a lot in terms of like recognizing that hip hop in all of its facets and all of its elements is a, is a way, it's a new way of thought. It's a new, it's a new formula for critical thinking. And it's not just the culture. It's a way we our brains function in hip hop. If hip hop is remix culture, then it stands to reason that the way that we think is in remix form. We're literally observing the the, the our lived experience, the, the world around us, and we are filtering it through this hip hop lens that is allowing us to really recreate and, and take autonomy over these these kind of institutions, institutions like language for that for that for that matter, right? We're literally remixing language in the way that we change the words that are how words are spelled in the way that words are said, how they're rhyming, right? Slant rhymes and accent rhymes and all of these different things. We're completely breaking all of these institutional paradigms with just language, let alone art, let alone music or sound or any of these different things. There's a lot of innovative stuff that is going on in the world of hip hop that I think can now be applied to more or less a philosophy and a way of thinking as opposed to just a culture and a form of creativity. But I think in introducing this form or this brand of creativity to young people and, and, and framing it as here's a new way for you to think, you're gonna find kids who literally really latch onto it and it changes their entire reality, you know? Um, it becomes the the introduction by which the growth, the, the, the self-discovery happens, and it becomes the vehicle by which kids are able to kind of remove their own blockages. Um, you know, I, I removed a lot of my emotional or mental blockages as a kid simply because I wanted to get more vocabulary words to write better raps, right? So I could imagine that the same kind of motivation will be present in some of the kids that I teach, that whatever's going on in their lives, they want to be better. They want to be better humans, or they need to be first told that you're deserving of better, right? And I think that that's important first. Like, it, so for me, my approach when I teach is to develop a relationship, to develop a, a, a sense of trust so that I can establish myself not as an authority figure in the lives of kids, but more so as somebody you want to listen to. And once you've established that, you can then introduce them to these new concepts that 
really help them evolve in, in, in their lives, you know, if they're open to it. Some people not, you, you know, they're not. Um, and they're going to still deal with those blockages. And it doesn't matter how well they rap. They just haven't applied it to recognize like, oh, I can, I can literally change my reality by rapping, you know, in one way or another. Everybody thinks it's about, oh, you rap good and you get money. But it's no, you rap good and now you can add language to how you feel, right? You're not popping off at the next man for him having disrespected you because you're able to articulate yourself and explain, you know. So there's a very there's a there's a there's an emotional literacy and an emotional intelligence that comes with tapping into this brand of creativity that we call emceeing. And that's what I'm trying to instill with young people. But at the same time, I'm learning things from them that's allowing me to be a better artist and a better communicator. And you mentioned too, just teaching kids and, and reinforcing confidence, building confidence in students that, that you're working with. You've been in a lot of schools. You've seen a lot of different situations. How have you seen white supremacy and colonialism in schools and the negative impact that that has on students? Because we all have different experiences in schools and we can all point to negative experiences. But I think one thing that uh, we're still grappling with as, as a nation is how white supremacy is just baked into U.S. public school experience for students. Um, yeah. What have What have you seen? Um, it runs the gamut, right? It runs the gamut in, from everywhere, everything, and everywhere from me having to sell the idea of hip hop education to administrators and principals and their their reluctancy or their hesitancy to even have it as a program, let alone an assembly, right? Like just being able to have to prove that hip hop is, is valid as an assembly model is already a hard thing, right? So when I'm in these rooms with academics and administrators, that is a social justice calling. I am in that room as a representative and as an ambassador of this culture that we love, that I recognize as inclusive, that I recognize as, as, as multicultural and tolerant. And I have to quantify that to explain it to an audience that is not part of this culture. And, also, and all the while has these very negative connotations associated with our culture, right? And that's really very much baked in white supremacy and 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 um eurocentric ways of thinking and that's ultimately what we're fighting in in these schools with hip-hop education and hip-hop pedagogy is a very eurocentric way of thinking i mean i think um bro from uh, 808 mafia just posted his son being told by a teacher in his school that he is ethnocentric meaning that he believes that white people are superior he's being told this in school right and you know it, it's 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 an honor to i commend the gentleman for being honest but it also reveals, it kind of pulls back the curtain on the entire public education system, that you are literally in a world as a young Black boy who may be dealing with a lot of personal roadblocks as it relates to trauma, as it relates to poverty, as it relates to just being Black in America. You're already dealing with that outside of school, but then you're coming to school and you're being taught a history that isn't yours or that doesn't even include, like factor your lived experience into its curriculum or the experience that people who look like you have lived, right? It doesn't contextualize or give you representation in terms of other thinkers who look like you. We get the same tired stories every Black History Month. We get Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, George Washington Carver made the peanut butter, and that's the bulk of it, right? But you're starting to see in certain geographical locations, the Bay Area probably more progressive and liberal than other spa spaces in, in America, right? My, my older son has a Black leadership class. He's 16 years old. And he's this present semester, you know, to be 100% honest, like he wasn't doing well in school up until present presently. And part of my kind of conversations that I've had with his teachers, conversations with his mother, conversations with my family members is he needs a Black teacher. This is something that I've told them for the last three years. He needs to see someone who he thinks as can, he can relate to give him education aside from myself, right? So now we just made the decision to put him into a school in Oakland where there are Black teachers. It's a predominantly Black staff. And there is, they're providing a level of cultural relevance and of affirmation that is removing the blockages that is allowing him to learn and thrive in that environment and that experience. But when you're in a school where it's predominantly white teachers giving you a predominantly Eurocentric view of the world, 
and you're consistently disciplined for who you are, not necessarily what you're doing, but who you are. Don't wear this kind of hat, pull your pants up, right? None of the things that you value outside of this school matter, right? You're learning about slave owners. You're learning about, you know, inventors who are all white and you don't see yourself in the curriculum. Then it's a lot harder for you to even take school seriously at least for a young person of color, whether you're black, Latino, Asian, you know what I'm saying? You have less, you, you, there's so many struggles that you're dealing with just as a kid in America, black kid in America going through your adolescence, that the last thing is on your mind or the last thing that's a form of priority is learning about some antiquated white men or learning, you know, or learning that your culture and what you, what, who you are and your lived experience has no value, which is kind of the narrative that a lot of young kids are taking away. Um, considering the white supremacist or the Eurocentric way that we've established learning in this country, you know? So we're having those challenges and I think we're getting a lot of pushback, right? Like um, critical race theory being challenged in many states um, as something that they don't want to teach or don't want to implement, you know, that kind of uh, culturally affirmative and, and, and uh, relevant pedagogy that I'm sure you and I have discussed in our own academic circles and we know is effective is really being met with a lot of resistance in other spaces because they just don't want to yield to the idea that white people are not the center of the universe, right? It's almost at par with, and, and this may be a stretch, but it's almost at par with like during the enlightenment and, and coming to the realization that the earth is not the center of the universe. Right. Recognizing like we revolve around the sun and we exist in a solar system. And as earthlings and as a person, people on this planet, we are part of a larger form of order in the universe. Right. So we can kind of get past this Eurocentric way of thinking and recognize that there are there is value in, in in understanding european history but then there's also value in understanding african history there's value in understanding asian history and we can take all of these experiences and create a more comprehensive and universal way of understanding humanity and recognizing the value of it you know what i'm saying i use it as a metaphor for tolerance when i when i do assemblies because a lot of schools come to us as hip hop for change to come in and yeah we're giving you an assembly and it's cool and this kid's rapping and break dancing but then some kids some some schools will say hey we have an issue with bullying we have an issue with racism can you weave some of those themes into your conversation or your presentation. And I do, and I say, okay, if we're dealing with racism, if we're dealing with marginalization, right? I bring up this alien kind of example. I say, if aliens came down today, there would be nobody more happy than me because I'm, I, I'm more interested and curious than I am fearful, right? Because I wanna know what their experience is. I wanna know what they have to teach us. I am recognizing that there is value in learning something new from people who are new and people who are different. And I use that kind of as a metaphor for if you are in a room with different shades and different ethnicities and different languages, there is a value in trying to learn and understand and build empathy for these other lived experiences, right? And I think that once we're able to do that and we stop kind of siloing ourselves based on the, the illusion of scared, scarce resources, based on this kind of jockeying for position uh, proximate to whiteness, um, if we're able to kind of have those deeper conversations and, and really value culture and the way that we say America does, we're going to all be better off for it come 20, 50 years down the line. That's, a, that's, those are so many great points. I mean, we could go in like 30 different directions off of that response alone, because you touched on so many <laughs> important things. I mean, my whole dissertation was on the importance of black teachers and the black teacher shortage and what can be done to recruit and retain black teachers. And at the heart of all of it was um, was being like what what was leading to the shortage in, in a lot of um, my research was the the feel the racism and the feelings of not belonging in the community and leading folks to to move move outside of of Charlottesville, which you Ooh. know we've we've talked about has been through a lot and had a lot of has had a lot of issues um, over the over the past few years, but also. Um, that whole boogeyman of critical race theory that yeah. you know conservatives have been pushing that really no one can explain it 
or why they hate it. They just say this is what it does when they couldn't be further from the truth. When really critical race theory explains the origins and and how racism, origins of racism, how racism is really baked into our everything in our in our world, you know, like very generally speaking. Um what's your response, you know, when when you get that resistance to hip hop education, you know, whether it's, you know, anti-critical race theory, um just a deficit view of hip hop culture and, and, and hip hop music. Like how do you respond to principals and administrators or, or others who come at you with, with some of the, um, those conservative talking points? Yeah. I mean, I, on one level, I'm empathetic, but at the same time, I'm very assertive and I'm very unapologetic about what we're teaching and who we're and who we're teaching it to and why, and what the value is of it. Um, I had a school, who wanted us to come in and do a, do an assembly. Um, but they took exception to the fact that in our slide presentation, there were pictures of our staff wearing end white supremacy t-shirts. So they made it as almost a precondition of our of us coming to do the assembly for us not to talk about white supremacy, for us not to wear shirts, for us not to reveal those pictures. Um, and I took exception to that and I declined even participating in any sort of programming with them. Um, and the story got picked up on like LinkedIn and, and San Francisco Chronicle even covered it um, because I did an open letter in a video saying we're declining this because you. Anybody who has a problem with white supremacy at this point <laughs> is revealing something about the way they think that is no longer accepted in our society. Right. Like that's ultimately what because what, what are we talking about when we say end white supremacy? We're not saying to end white people. You know what I'm saying? You're one of my oldest colleagues. I've known you for years. You know what I'm saying? Like you're I, I see you as a member of this culture, but I also recognize that you I recognize your whiteness and I value your whiteness. That's part of your lived experience. Right. And I tell people all the time hip hop is asking nothing of you but to come as you are. Right. And that's that's kind of what draws people to this culture. So it would be far removed from me to make people shameful of where they come from, regardless of what their race is. But if we're taking an exception to saying end white supremacy and the form of Eurocentric thought that has really ruined our country, then you're revealing something about yourself that says to me, you want to maintain the status quo. And the status quo we have already seen is no longer serving us. It's no longer serving people of color. It's not even serving white people anymore, right? And I understand that, you know, no one wants to feel shamed for who they are or any of that. But you also have to recognize and, and, and really contextualize what benefits people of, of, of the white race in our country have, have, have taken at the expense of every other <laughs> uh, culture that comes to this country. Right. We're having conversations about immigration as if white people didn't come on boats themselves and decimate an entire population that was already over here. Right. Like I just don't even like when we have those immigration conversations, I'm just not even sure, like how you're not factoring that into your thinking. How are you not factoring 300, 400 plus years of slavery and, and, and trauma into the thinking as to why black people are responding to certain things in our country in the way that they are or relate to certain things. Like the, if you're not even factoring that, so like, let's even broaden it out. Let's like, if, if, when I have these conversations, I try to broaden it. So it's, it's yes, I'm gonna be unapologetic about what I represent. I represent hip hop culture, which I think is a universal culture, number one, right? That's inclusive of every other race. But further to that, we gotta call a spade, a motherfucking spade sometimes and really have those deeper conversations. You know what I'm saying? This is not to say that I'm going to sit there with a five-year-old during a hip-hop presentation and try to explain to them why white people are, are bad because they own slaves. That's not my place right then and there, right? My place is to normalize a little white girl in her school seeing me teach, to normalize that and to wreck it and, and for that little white girl to value my presence as opposed to being fearful of it. This is ultimately what we're doing. So if I have to teach her beat making for her 20 years down the line, not to clutch her purse when she sees a black person walk down the street, then that's what we're doing ultimately. You know what I'm saying? So it has nothing to do with the harder, more nuanced conversations that we're having in the media space or that we're having in conventions or conferences. We're not trying to impose any of that on young kids who literally just want to dance. They want to learn. They want to rap. They want to sing. And we can introduce that to them as just the kind of the, the, the start off point. 
for them to develop a level of tolerance. And when we talk about tolerance, we're not just talking about you're tolerated, but we don't want to live with you. Changing it or switching the dynamics so that they recognize the intrinsic value that comes with seeing perspectives and ethnicities that are opposite to your own, right? Not seeing it as a threat to your whiteness, not seeing it as a threat to your existence, because that's also the conversations that we're having in this country that no one's talking about, that there are white people in this country that are literally thinking that they're going to be stamped out of existence if they let a few Mexican refugees in. <laughs> like that, I mean, that's the perpetual thinking. Right, and, 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 and in that thinking is fear, in that thinking is the desire, the desire for survival, and you're not thinking rationally, right? Your, your critical thought is going off a line if you're in survival mode. And what we're seeing in the cons these conservative spaces with these kind of conversation pieces is the, the, the threat that they are feeling that they're gonna be stamped out of existence, which is unrealistic. <laughs> like, let's be just clear on that. It's a completely unrealistic, um, frame of thinking that is used as a narrative to literally cattle prod people into certain political positions, right? But at the expense of further dividing our country. That's, I mean, that's really where we're, that's the damage that's being done, right? The more we we create this fear mongering that like white people are becoming less and, and, and not getting enough resources, it's, it's killing our ability to heal from the racial trauma that our country has and it's killing our ability to move forward into a future that's inclusive of all people. You know, a great book I read was called The Sum of Us, um, some mm. S-U-M about the, the and, I, and I, the author's name escapes me at this at this moment. But one of the key takeaways was how white people view any kind of progress as like a zero sum game. So like if white, if every, if, if other people are winning, if non-white people are winning, it must mean white people have to be losing. It just can't be, we all win together. And right. one of like the biggest examples was this swimming pool um, way back, back in like the sixties, I think, and, or the seventies. And mm. it was in Alabama or Mississippi, but instead of integrating the pool, a judge ruled that um, the pool has to be integrated because there's not two different pools for separate but equal. So we have to integrate the pool. The The city decided it would be better to fill the pool with concrete than to integrate it. So now no one can swim instead of everybody right. swimming. It's it's cutting your nose despite your face, right? Like, and I, I apologize for the, the car horn that you're hearing in the background. Um, but that's exactly what it is. It's cutting your nose despite your face. It's, it's, it's a very narcissistic, a collectively narcissistic way of dealing with accountability. Right. Just recognizing like, yo, this can't be just for you. There's too many people here for this to be just for you. And further to that, whatever you are offering them, the other that you're that you're determining is not of the same quality. It's not of the same respect. Like, it, you know, what I'm saying that you would rather fill up like the, the level of petty <laughs> that that is. I'm going to fill a pool with concrete because I literally do not want black people living, swimming in my pool. Like to say that now in the 21st century, just just it the, the absurdity just jumps out at you, right? If you were to hear anybody just literally say that, regardless of race, let's say we had two aliens arguing with each other and one, one has the pool, the other one doesn't and wants to use the pool. If we saw that the aliens were arguing about it and one of them filled it up with concrete, we would look at that just objectively and be like, that's wild. That's a wild response to that. Right. But then we get a little bit sensitive if we kind of insert ourselves in that. And I think that has a lot to do with our what I call our individualist as well as collectivist mindsets. Right. I, I've, I've often said in my lectures that America has emphasized historically an individualist mindset. You do your thing, individual responsibility, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you're able to get a, you're able to get ahead. Right. Whereas other cultures outside of the United States are very much collectivist in that we're all we got. We have to do what's in the benefit of the collective whole as opposed to just the individual. But I think that that, that wrestling of the thinking also kind of be can be applied to the subliminal sense of white solidarity that goes on with people of, of a racist mindset or a more conservative mindset where their individualism lies in their whiteness, right? So I, I can remove myself as an individual into the collective provided that the collective is all white like me, 
But when I'm when it's time to be challenged to include other races, ethnicities, and viewpoints, that's where we draw the line. Right. Like that's so, you know what I'm saying? So it's yes. So a lot of white America in our country presently is very much individualist. It's very much us. It's about us. We associate our whiteness with our actual authentic Americanism, or that's we we associate a criteria of authentic Americanism is whiteness in many parts of this country. Um, and that needs to be challenged. And I don't think people, you know, no one likes anything new or or diverse that that challenges their status quo or their way they're thinking. We're literally seeing people go through some sort of subliminal existential crisis anytime we challenge that. But I think it's important, right? If we if we're also recognizing that mental health is important in our country, we have to recognize that part of getting well mentally and growing and healing is also dealing with racial trauma right? Not only imposed by white people, but also how it affects white people in their thinking, in the paranoia that was developed, right? And it's something that I have empathy for. I get it. Like you came from another country to escape persecution in Europe and you came here and you were so fearful of, 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 of the people who were already here. You had to develop narratives in your brain to dehumanize them and then take them out, right? But that didn't do well for you. It didn't do well for anybody else that was in here so it's it's kind of a it's kind of this game where it's like that's a collective trauma and y'all need white people need to heal from a collective trauma in the same way that black people need to heal from a collective trauma we as americans in this country all need to heal from these collective traumas right so exploring mental health needs to also kind of be extrapolated into how is racial trauma showing up in your life in one way or another and it does regardless whether you're a white person from nebraska or a black person from Harlem or a Latino from LA, like it's, it, it, it does affect us. And we need to kind of approach it from the humanitarian perspective and from the mental health perspective. But as long as we're talking about the other and this and this and that, and more particularly for people of color and, and in communities of color, I think it's also important for us to recognize what it is that we want when we talk about racial justice, uh, better education, all of these different things. Do we want justice or do we want revenge? You know what I'm saying? White people aren't giving us what we're asking for because they fear revenge. And some of us are very cool with having revenge as opposed to just justice or mercy or understanding, right? We just kind of need to move beyond these the, the anger that's there. And it's, it's justified anger, but we need to be able to move on because that's all we've been given. As a black person who's literally lived my life with such anger for a lot of different reasons and now like in therapy and healing and all of that, I, I recognize that you have to be able to articulate a, an emotion other than anger. You know what I'm saying? And it's really hard in certain spaces, especially in academia, um, for, for people of color to, to navigate in any other emotion other than anger. So we just need to be able to create more spaces like that, but it comes with awareness and it comes with just being really honest and just being cool with the honesty, you know? No, I mean, that's that's huge. I mean, how do, how do you see hip hop for change creating those spaces these days? And and uh, I know how involved you are and, and how passionate you are about hip hop for change and the great work that the organization is doing. So, so how do you see that manifesting itself in in the work that you're doing and in, in, in the schools and everything and, and really everything you do from your music to your teaching? Yeah, I think ultimately it's being inclusive, it's being a champion of different lived experiences. It, it really lies in my staff. Shout out to my Hip Hop for Change educator staff that is amazingly um, well-skilled in what they do, but also extremely diverse, right? We have Asian women, we have white women, we have black women, we have white males, we have Mexicans, we have black people, you know what I'm saying? We have Latin, like it just, it runs the gamut in terms of our educator staff. So when we come to an assembly, at a school, the kids there, regardless if it's a predominantly white school, predominantly black school, are seeing a full spectrum of lived experiences. And those lived experiences are what, are what is informing the creativity that they're about to partake in, right? So it's a value add. So, we're, we, so for me as education director of Hip Hop for Change, and my job is mainly at this point to, to develop curriculum, to do trainings, to you know, uh, solidify and, and foster partnerships in the community with schools, with other after school programs, other nonprofits. Um, 
it's a, a point to have a very diverse staff, but then to train our staff and, and the integrity of our teaching model, right? Our curriculum model is such that we are introducing people to a new healing way of thought, which is hip hop, which is a culture that I grew up with that from every vantage point of my experience with this culture has always been inclusive. I was a kid in New York City going to DJ battles in the West Village and watching Asian ass cutting candy DJ on turntables, right? Her Asian-ness never factored into my thinking as a deterrent, right? I knew Asian kids who were in Zulu Nation. I know Asian kids now who are in Zulu Nation, right? This is Zulu Nation. This is the organization that is somewhat founded hip hop that is very much rooted in African thinking. You have Asian people who are members of it. You have Middle Eastern people who are members of it, right? Like, you know, and, and, and what they bring to the table, you know, artists like, like, Lazarus, right? Who's like from the Middle East and he raps and he's like amazing at what he does. And you you just, you see how the world can be helped by, by, by hip hop in terms of just understanding diversity and recognizing the value of diversity. It's, it's the one space I think in, in more recent history, 20th century, 21st century, where we may not be able to agree on politics, but we can agree that Biggie was a dope MC. We can agree on a Biggie record. We can agree on a lot of things that are, relate to hip hop that have nothing to do with race, class, or social background. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that you know, so let's start with that. If I'm, if I'm recognizing that in the world, let's start with that. Let's start with this catalyst as the, 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 the focal point for unification. And then all the other things become they kind of wash away, right? Because we are now binding ourselves and creating communities based on a separate criteria other than race. And in doing so, we are building allies in different fields of life who are gonna advocate for that level of, of equity, diversity, and understanding, right? So in my education work now, I'm finding that we're, we have allies, right? And the allies that we have in these spaces, whether it's in, in the tech world, um, in the corporate world or in the education space, they're hip hop heads. You know what I'm saying? This is not John Brown in the 1800s trying to free slaves because he's a he hates slavery. These are people who recognize the value of just having hip hop in school and saying, hey, I want you to come and teach our kids how to rap or make beats or whatever the case is. They're doing it from a, just a creative hip hop standpoint and has nothing to do with race. And in, and in turn, in allowing our presence there, Kids are learning very fundamental and valuable understandings about race and, and valuing diversity just by our mere presence without even having to mention it. And I think the pushback a lot of the time is that administrators are fearful that we're going to have these really very deep, awkward conversations with young kids who may not have all of the, the tools necessary to process what they're being told. Um, but with that said, it's like, no, we're starting with just creativity. And then from there, we're going to build a, a, a frame of thought that's going to be a great deal more tolerant, not only on racial lines, but in terms of gender, sexual preference, you know what I'm saying? Like all these other things that we're now more and more having conversations about, um, that these people need to be protected as well. These people need to have safe and brave spaces as well. Humanity needs to exist. And we can't, if we can't be fully human if, if not all of us feel human, right? We're not gonna fully embrace our humanity until we recognize the humanity and other lived experiences. Just because they don't, you know what I'm saying? Don't Just because they don't uh, align with where we are doesn't make them less valuable. And I think that that's the starting point. And, and, and how close knit is that hip hop educator community? Because there's been a lot of hip hop artists who have gone into teaching. Like we know like guys like Sadat X, J Live taught for like a year or two. Um, Wordsworth went back to school, got his teaching degrees. He's oh, been, you know, <laughs> yeah. And, and Jay Rawls is is teaching in, in in college. You have hip hop professors like Ad Carson at UVA, who, um, you know, his dissertation was an album. And yes, um, you know, like yeah, Mickey, I, I I remember reading about that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's a such a cool story, and 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 proud that he's representing UVA like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, Mickey Fax, like, there's a lot of hip hop artists now who are really um, emphasizing the hip hop ed piece, you know, hip hop ed. Um, 
Christopher M. Dean on Twitter, you know, that the yeah. hashtag, the the, hip-hop the ed, yeah, totally. The conversations, you know, how close knit is that that hip hop ed community? And, you know, how do you all kind of build off each other's ideas, support each other, and really make sure that um that that these key messages that you've been talking about, you know, just keep spreading and, and keep getting out there to for for students? Yeah, well, let's first establish that hip hop education is a movement. This is a movement that I don't think is getting enough exposure and we're not talking about it enough, right? If you're in the circle, then you're in the circle, right? You as an academic and as a hip hop head, you're very familiar with all of the names you just mentioned, as am I. They're showing up on our timeline. It's part of our own individual zeitgeist. But in Wisconsin, they know nothing, right? In most cases. And further to that, there are MCs and there is a hip hop community in Wisconsin that I would imagine are is also teaching are also having key uh, educators who also rap or are hip hop heads who are literally trying to implement hip hop education into their curriculum and they're doing it by themselves with no level of support or help. So I think the challenge for us in this movement, right? The, 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 the Brian Kaisers of the world, the unlearned the worlds of the world, the Christopher Emden's, the Mickey facts of the world, the Tasha Iglesias of the world for us to start really building. Like I see, I'm, I'm part of these educational conferences now. Like I, I go to these educational conferences and I'm starting to become, you know, the people who are doing the work are familiar with the other ones doing the work, but there are other people who are not familiar with any of us. So I think it's like the challenge for us. And the question is what mechanisms do we need to start putting in place where we can put everything under kind of one umbrella and, and, and tell these people who are actively doing the work who have no support, yo, you can, you have support here. We can help you. We can build these structures and these systems in places, in academic spaces, whether it's kindergarten through 12th grade or at the university level or even junior college, whatever. Further to that, I would say in the same way that as an individual artist myself, I made it a choice to integrate hip hop education into my brand as an artist. I think the hip hop music industry and the hip hop cultural industry needs to start embracing hip hop education. I think we only do it when Ninth Wonder gets an award for some shit. We only do it when Nas, who is the one of the most it's kings of our culture, has the Harvard Fellowship. We only do it when the people who have the, the brand names are doing the work, but we're not uplifting or amplifying the people who have been doing the work, right? Like been doing like there's there's no reason that we as an educator should not be celebrated in our culture in the same way that a rapper is celebrated in our culture because what that will do for the young kid who is a hip-hop head it'll show them an alternative pathway to existing in this culture without having to rap or make beats or be plugged into a music industry that's super capitalistic and exploitive right we'll be able to then say okay you can still be your most authentic self you can be your most amplified self and you don't have to rap or make beats to do it you can literally teach this culture you could teach fashion you could teach videography you can teach the philosophy of it you could teach the history of it like you can actually just be an educator and and there's so many different uh subjects within hip-hop for you to be able to teach on and your expertise comes from your experience and the culture as opposed to oh i went to school and got a four year degree or a master's degree in hip-hop which there are we have people in doctorates <laughs> we have you know what I'm saying we have the thinkers we don't need more rappers and this is a rapper saying <laughs> we don't need more rappers we need people who are thinkers who are able to extrapolate that thought and their love for hip-hop into other fields right the fact that here we are going through past another election cycle and we do not have an established and well-funded hip-hop political think tank is beyond me that shit is beyond me. We have Killer Mike. We send Killer Mike out there. We send P. Diddy out there or Puffy out there to get people to vote. But we don't have an actual think tank that is in Washington lobbying for policies that would benefit the culture, right? I think that that's where we need to start heading. I think hip hop education and the movement thereof is the perfect kind of vehicle for that. And over the next probably five years, we'll see that develop, right? Because as we're seeing some of these luminaries pop up in educational spaces, as we're getting more uh, classes on hip hop, whether it's a, a class on a Kendrick album or a class on music production, the fact that those are existing in these spaces, I think is a, is a great sign for that. But let's start getting hip hop schools. You know what I'm saying? Let's start getting... Um, 
our own culture to fund us, right? Like, you know, P. Diddy's building schools. Why is that not, you know, Dr. Dre's building schools, right? We we're, we actually have people in our culture who are building schools, but they're not saying, hey, the emphasis here is hip hop creativity and social justice work through the culture of hip hop, right? And I think that, that we need to advocate more towards that as opposed to, oh yeah, I'm just a rapper building a school, but we're not gonna emphasize that hip hop is the centerpiece by which this school is gonna survive and thrive. You know, but you're, you know, you have allies and you get in where you can fit in. So shout out to everybody out there who's literally calling me or emailing me to get me in, in, the, in their school, because that's where the front line is. Right. I, and, and, and the more I do this work, the more I recognize that hip hop culture is the literally the front line for the social justice movement that we've been looking for. Right. It's the softer it, it's, it's the softer gun. In, in one way or another, right? Because you're, you're really just instilling these values in the children so that our landscape socially, racially, economically looks vastly different 20 years from now. Because the kids that we're teaching, regardless of whether they're black, white, Asian, whatever, they've been exposed to something that their parents were not exposed to, whether their parents were immigrants, their parents were, you know, a, a white person in a rural, rural part of the country or a black person in a black neighborhood, it doesn't matter. They're being exposed to these, these, these uh, archetypes, these figures, whether they're teachers or other, and subject matter that is going to kind of baseline their thinking so that 20 years from now you see dramatic changes you know what i'm saying and i think we we can hasten it. it doesn't have to be 20 years we don't have to wait 20 years for this change to occur we can hasten it by creating these spaces and by valuing hip-hop education in the same way that we value a platinum record right that's the only way that this paradigm is going to shift right let's not stay, keep sending kids uh as, as, as fodder for the music industry. And I think we're starting to see that tide shift because we're now calling into question how the music industry is in one way enabling and benefiting from the death of rappers. And the more that becomes a chilling factor, the more we start kind of amongst ourselves in the culture, start saying, hey, this shit is off course and we need a course correct. I think part of that solution that we're going to land on is we need to start teaching hip hop education. We need to, hip hop was literally created to and, and, and thrived in the 70s to stop gang violence. But how is it now being used to exacerbate gang violence, right? Like we need to start kind of grounding every person who wants to participate in this culture in the history of it and, and, and them learning that, um, but also you know, feeling empowered to, to, to take on this new frame of thinking. Um, so it's going to be a process and it, 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 it's there and we could continue to support people who are actually doing the work, whether it's a rapper who has the nine to five teaching job and is just teaching English or math or whatever the case is and they're rapping on the side or if you're the full-time artist touring, you know, give a lecture, give a, give a workshop, right? Volunteer your time in one way or another to the young people of America so that they can see something other than just, you know, toxicity on screen. So it's, it's, it's a challenge, but we're, I, we're, we're in the right direction, I feel.